Stay on your feet and grab your Bibles. My name, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Ian. I'm the Family Life Pastor here at Epicenter Church. Pastor Mark is not with us today. He's uh, visiting family, but he'll be back next weekend. And he's got a brand new series ready for you, some cool announcements to roll out. So you definitely don't want to miss next week. But it's really an honor and a privilege for me to be able to stand here and deliver God's word to you this morning. It's not something I take lightly. I'm always so thankful when Pastor Mark has, uh, chooses to entrust me with the opportunity to, to speak to all of you this morning. And so I'm very grateful to him as well. Take your Bibles. If I, I can't remember if I've already told you where we're going, but turn to Luke chapter 15. We're going we're gonna to spend some time, amen, we're going to spend some time in one of probably the most famous passages of Scripture in the entire Bible this morning, um, but I want to kind of look at it in a slightly new light, but it, um, before we do that, I need to lay a little groundwork. So we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 15, and it says this in the New Living Translation, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. How dare he? This is not the first time that these Pharisees and scribes, as your, your translation may call them, had, had asked these kind of questions about Jesus, and it wouldn't be the last. See, they, they were convinced that these notorious sinners were so unclean that they didn't wanted nothing to do with them. They had kind of set themselves apart to try to live righteously through their actions and their, their behaviors, and they chose that they wanted nothing to do with those who were unclean. They, some rabbis even took this so far as to be to refuse to teach the unclean God's word. And here we find Jesus doing exactly that, teaching God's word to these people that these, these um, Pharisees and scribes considered to be unclean. And not only is he teaching them, but he's dining with them, which in that culture was an incredibly intimate experience. And rather than the Pharisees taking this opportunity to reflect and evaluate on their own motives and actions and be like, I wonder if Jesus kind of has a point. Instead, they choose to allow it to further lessen their view of Jesus because they think to themselves, there's no way this guy could be anything other than a mere man if he's willing to waste his time hanging out with these lost causes. And that's the title of my message this morning, Lost Cause. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, Lost Cause, and then you can have a seat this morning. In case you don't know, a lost cause is defined as something or someone that can no longer hope to succeed or be changed for the better. And in, in the cultural and political, even spiritual view of that day and age, the Pharisees were technically justified in viewing these unclean or notorious sinners as lost causes. But God, not only here in this passage, but throughout history, seems to have a soft spot for lost causes. If you think about it, Adam, the first man, he disobeyed God. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was a liar and a cheater. Jacob was a thief. Moses was a murderer. And David was pretty much all of those things. Rahab was a prostitute. Gideon was a puny wimp. Peter had anger issues. And Paul was trying to wipe out the entire Christian faith. Each of these individuals had flaws and character traits which we could have justif which would have allowed them to be justifiably written off as a lost cause. And yet God used every single one of them to do amazing things. When I think about lost causes and about God having a heart for, lo for the lost causes, I think about 
my dad, he's here today. I won't point him out to uh, embarrass him any more than he already is going to be when I'm about to talk to him, talk about him in the next couple minutes. But he's an awesome guy, and he reminds me of God in this respect. You know, my dad's not perfect. He'd be the first one to tell you that. He's, um, you know, he's not all wise or all knowing, but he certainly does have a soft spot for lost causes. You know, as long as I can remember, my dad has taken things that other people rejected and turned them into something valuable. I remember 25 years ago, we were driving home from church, and we, we drove past, sitting out by the side of the road ready for trash pickup, an old iron basketball goal. I think it was iron. I don't know the difference between metals. But anyways, we're going to go with that. It was rusty as I don't know what. And the people had thrown it out to the curbside to be picked up. And we, we drove past. And I don't remember anything. I didn't think much of it. But, you know, after we got home and my dad dropped us off, he left and went back out for a few minutes. And when he came back in the back of his vehicle was that rusty old iron basketball goal. And my mom's like, what are you doing? Why are you bringing that piece of junk to my house? And after a few days, you know, they, he, he sanded it down and painted it and hung it on a, on a post and, and planted it in the ground. And that was the very first basketball goal that my brothers and I ever had. And you wouldn't have known that he picked it up from, uh, I mean, it wasn't the most beautiful thing in the world, but it worked really well. I mean, I played on it a couple hours a day. That's where I fell in love with the game of basketball. And although it certainly didn't help me um, gain any money, it, the, my love for basketball has, yeah, I couldn't jump high enough. But anyways, um, it helped me develop relationships and interactions. And it's kind of a confusing story, but I'm, I'm telling you, I could go down a list of people, relationships I've developed and people I've been, been able to talk to just because of my um, passion for the game of basketball that would never have existed if my dad hadn't picked up that old rusty basketball goal and seen something in it more than just a piece of trash. You know, he did that with, with cars as well. He was, a, he was a, something of a mechanic, so he would take old busted up cars that people were ready to send to the junkyard. They're like, I'm not putting in the time to fix this darn thing. And he knew, all right, I'll, I'll take it. I'll give you a couple hundred dollars for it. Like, okay, dummy, you're lost. And he would diagnose the problem, spend a day, maybe a week fixing it, and turn around and sell the thing for a lot more than what he paid for it because he saw something in that that others were, weren't willing to see. Even with people, my dad would always refuse to write somebody off. I can remember this kid who was four or five years older than me growing up in church, and he had an attitude problem, right? He, people didn't want to deal with him. They're like, oh, my gosh, not that guy. I don't want him in my class. You know, they... I, I, I don't remember all the details, but I remember, I think that there was even an instance where they wanted to just send him to sit with his mom. They didn't want him in any of the, the kid classes or anything. And my dad's like, no, nah, I'll, I'll take care of him. And he invested in him. He would talk to this kid every week. He'd give him rides home. And, you know, for a long time, nothing changed. But when me and this kid were both adults, he came back to me and said, hey, man, I just want you to know your dad played a huge role in me getting my life together because he never gave up on me. And so my dad and God see eye to eye on this one specific thing. I mean, sure, I'm sure they see eye to eye on lots of things, but the specific thing I want to talk about today is they see eye to eye on this. A cause is only truly lost when there's no longer anyone willing to put in the work to look for it. So 
With that in mind, I want us to zoom out a little bit further into our own lives. And if we take this this idea, this concept of a lost cause a little further, every single person in this room today at one point or another has firsthand experience with the idea of a lost cause. Some of us right now are in this room and we're dealing with a relational lost cause. There's somebody in your life who you've been believing in, praying for, hoping for, knowing that they have what it takes to be better than what they are. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a friend or a relative. I don't know, but there's somebody in your life who you've been investing in, pouring your time into. You're like, I know that they can do better, but at every single turn, there's no change. There's, it, it feels like failure, and you're like, I don't know how much longer I can keep hoping in this person, hoping that this person is going to get things figured out. You see what they could be versus what they choose to be, and it becomes so frustrating to you, but... It just becomes more and more tempting to simply write them off as a lost cause and move on. Or maybe you're in a situation right now that feels like a lost cause. And whether that means a sickness in you or someone you care about, perhaps it's a struggling marriage or messed up finances, maybe the loss of someone close to you, or just general confusion about life and why it's so hard so often. You feel like you've been run through the ringer so many times and nothing really changes. You keep hoping, but everything feels more and more hopeless by the day. And you've come to the point where you're not sure if you can or even want to hope anymore because the entire situation just feels like a lost cause. Or maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you are a lost cause, like some combination of your past, your pain, and your problems have rendered you irredeemable. Maybe you feel like the decisions you've made, the things that you've done, or the things that have been done to you have left you feeling so far out of reach or of love and forgiveness that it's not even worth having hope any longer. When you look in the mirror, you don't see anything but a lost cause. But the thing about a lost cause is that it's only truly lost when there's no longer anyone willing to put in the work to look for it. So whichever of these three types of lost causes resonate with you the most, I feel like you can probably identify with the situation we're reading about in Luke chapter 15. The Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law cannot believe that Jesus is willing to lower himself to the status of wasting his time on a bunch of notorious sinners. And yet Jesus sees these lost causes as something more than that. So him beginning in verse 3, he responds to the murmurs and complaints of the Pharisees and scribes by telling three different stories about loss and recovery. The first two stories, the lost sheep and the lost coin, in verses 4 through 10, they explain how much heaven rejoices when, as Jesus says in verse 10, even one sinner repents. They paint this picture that God doesn't believe in lost causes. And in each of these first two stories, there's an element of someone working to find what was lost. In verses 4 through 7, a shepherd must leave the rest of his flock and go out looking for his lost sheep. In verses 8 through 10, a woman must tear through her entire house, sweeping every nook and cranny to look for a lost coin. But in both stories, Jesus makes it clear that the cause is only truly lost when they're no longer willing to put in the work to look for it. The shepherd could have said, you know what, man? I got 99 other sheep right here. That one sheep that left, he's a jerk anyway. I don't like him. He smells weird. He can go. But he didn't write him off. He put in the work to look for that sheep. You know, the woman could have said, you know what, nine coins out of ten, that's not bad. It's going to take me at least five hours to look for this coin. I'll make like 10, 15 bucks an hour. That's not worth my time. 
But she didn't write it off. She continued to put in the work. And then beginning in verse 11, Jesus tells what is arguably the greatest and most well-known story that he ever told, the parable or the story of the lost son, maybe known as the prodigal son. Verse 11 says, to illustrate this point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Essentially, this son has just walked up to his dad and said, dude, I wish you were dead. Like, my life would be so much better if you weren't around. I'm tired of being in your house. So just give me what I would get if you died now, and I'm going to go. You ain't going to deal with me no more. I ain't got to deal with you no more. We'll be, we'll be good, all right? So hand it over, bud. You know, he's declaring to his dad that he doesn't need help. This is more than just an argument or a disagreement. It's a deep display of disrespect and rebellion against his father. If my son ever said something like that to me, I don't know what I would do. Actually, I do know what I'd do, but I can't tell you. <laughs> what I would not do is say, here you go, buddy. I'd be like, dude, you realize how much money I spent for you on diapers and formula and clothes and food? And you eat a lot, bud. I ain't giving you nothing. You think you're better off than w without me. Go ahead. See. I mean, he's four, so I don't imagine having that conversation anytime soon, but. That's what the father does, though. He says, you know what? Here you go. And in verse 13, it says, A few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the field to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. A lot of times when we read this story or when we hear people preach from this story, it's, it's easy to forget that this is not a retelling of actual events, but that this is Jesus telling a story to an audience. And he, he's a master storyteller, and he provides details in this passage that really get his point across perfectly. He tells us the son left his father and spent all his time and money on wild living. The Bible is clear that sin and rebellion are fun for a time, and the son had himself some fun for a little while. But his rebellion against his father, combined with a series of unwise decisions and some, action, and some things that were outside his control, left him all alone when famine struck the nation. You know, I think it's important to note that even in the story that Jesus is telling, not all of the difficulties that this son is facing are his own fault. You know, yes, he behaved terribly toward his father and rebelled, and he didn't have the best judgment when it came to spending his money. And in that wild living, I'm sure he did a lot more other things that he probably shouldn't have been doing. But he had nothing to do with the famine that swept over the country he was living in. You know, we could argue that Maybe he would have been better prepared for that famine if he had made better choices leading up to it, but he can't look into the future. And so he, when he finds himself here in a pigsty at rock bottom, it's a combination of his own actions and the trials of life that have left him feeling desperate, unwanted, and alone. Jesus illustrates the depths of the son's despair by telling an audience of self-righteous Pharisees the only job the son could find was feeding pigs. 
which in that culture was the most unclean animal imaginable. And no one wanted anything to do with pigs. And yet Jesus said, that's how low this son has sunk. He's hanging out in a pigsty, feeding pigs. And his despair is so great that he's even considering eating the pig slop. Rock bottom is not a fun place to be, but we rarely get there on our own. The notorious sinners who served as the secondary audience for Jesus' stories probably identified with the son in this story. They, you know, they, they knew that they had sinned. They knew that they weren't living the way that they should, but they had no one to help him. Them, The Pharisees wanted nothing to do with them. They were unwilling to teach them a better way. It left them spiraling further and further into a life of sin and hopelessness. But here they identify with this son hanging out in a pigsty where no one will give him anything. No one wants anything to do with him. His situation is completely and utterly hopeless. And as they're listening, they're like, dude, that's me. And for some of you guys here today, you're, rock, you're at rock bottom and it, all, it has a lot to do with the choices that you made. But for others, we might find ourselves at rock bottom and it doesn't have anything to do with our own decisions. Just like the son didn't ask for or expect famine to strike his new home, you didn't ask for or expect to receive a life-changing medical diagnosis. You didn't ask for or expect your marriage to begin failing. You didn't ask for or expect your child to cut ties with you or your finances to become unmanageable or for you to lose your job or for something else going on in your life to happen to you. You didn't ask for or expect that, but that doesn't make rock bottom any less rocky. And the longer we spend at rock bottom, however we got there, through, through our own choices due to circumstances beyond our control or some combination of the two, the longer we spend there staring at pig pods and lamenting the fact that no one is giving us anything, the more hopeless it seems to become. Every single day we spend in the pigsties of life makes us feel more and more like a lost cause. And that's exactly where the son finds himself here, feeling helpless, hopeless, and alone. Unloved and unwanted, his best laid plans have been met with failure and famine. The most hope that, you know, he's, he's lamenting the fact that he doesn't know what he's doing. How could he feel like anything but a lost cause when it seems like everyone else around you has given up on you? How in the world are you supposed to keep hoping? But look what happens in verse 17. It says, when he finally came to his senses. He said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I think this is the light bulb moment for the son because he's finally decided to be honest with himself about the reality of his situation. He was at rock bottom and no, it wasn't all his fault that he got there, but it was absolutely his fault that he continued to stay there. In many translations, this phrase, came to his senses, is rendered as came to himself, and it implies recovery from some form of delusion or derangement. And while the Bible doesn't explicitly state this in the text, I believe that the delusion this son was suffering from was something that all of us struggle with on an almost daily basis, pride. Now, your response to that might initially be, what in the world does that guy have to be proud of? But I would contend that pride took hold of this man long before his moment in the pigsty. 
First, his pride told him that he was better off alone without his father's house, outside of his father's house, without his help and wisdom and guidance. Then it told him that he was spending his money wisely on that wild living. Finally, when the famine struck, pride told him that he had what it took to make it through on his own, that he didn't need to ask for help because he could figure it out all by himself. And then pride almost let him die alone in a pigsty drooling after pods the pigs ate. But in that moment, he came to his senses. He came to himself, and he realized that he couldn't do it on his own. The pride that took hold of him had deceived him. In that moment of clarity, he acknowledged his weakness and realized that his greatest hope was in the presence of his father, even if that meant living as a lowly servant. See, in our lost cause, rock bottom state, no matter what role we did or didn't play in getting there, my question is, what role are we playing in staying there? Are we stuck in the pigsty of life, wallowing in our misery and despair because there really is no other option? Or have we not yet come to our senses, allowing pride to convince us that despite all of our past failures to redeem ourselves or change our circumstances, that this time we have what it takes to get through this difficulty on our own? I don't know what kind of situation you find yourself in this morning, but I do know this. You don't have what it takes to make it through by yourself. And there is nothing wrong with that. See, pride will tell you that you can fix yourself, that this time will be the time that you turn things around. But there is, that, that is nothing but a delusion. Paul said in 2 Corinthians that God said his grace was sufficient for me. My power is made perfect in your weakness. But we can never get access to that power and that grace until we first admit our own weakness. So I challenge you this morning to come to your senses, admit your weakness, and realize that your greatest hope is found not in your own strength, but in the presence of your Heavenly Father. In verses 18 and 19, the son decides to take action toward finding a new life. He doesn't just sit there and be like, oh, that was a good, good realization. Too bad I'm still stuck here in this pigsty. He gets up. And he starts walking. He says in verse 18, I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So I imagine as the son begins to walk this journey from the pigsty to his father's house, that he starts to practice what he's going to say. You know, you all know when you were younger and you had to ask your parents for something big or the, you know, the students in this room, when you uh, do this now in your present day life, when you got to ask your parents for something big, like if you can borrow the car or stay out after curfew or go on a date or something like that, you don't just walk up to them and be like, hey, mom, can I borrow the car today? No, that's not going to work. You got to get it just right. You got to get the right phrasing and the right, you know, the right speech. And that, that doesn't mean that this, this son is any less sincere, but he's like, I don't know what my dad's going to do or say, so I got to make sure I say this thing just right. So he's like, Father, I have sinned against God. Oh, that's too dramatic. Okay, let's try again. Okay. Um, Father, I have sinned against God. That's too pitiful. Hmm, let's see. Uh, hey, Dad, you know, I mean, I probably sinned against, oh, that's too casual. That's not... Let's see. Okay. All right. Father, I've sinned against God and against you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. Yes, that's the one. And so he walks home practicing this speech. 
figuring out exactly what he's going to say. And beyond that, it'd be easy for us to look at this walk home and imagine him hanging his head, headed home as a failure, to, to look at this as a walk of shame. But if we choose to view it this way, then we do not yet understand the difference between humility and humiliation. Jesus spoke constantly about the importance of humbling ourselves in order to become great, in order to to access the grace that he has for us, admitting our weaknesses and pursuing God's strength. He will never humiliate us in our quest for that strength. He proved countless times throughout his time on earth that if anyone came to him truly repentant, he would not embarrass them. He would not give them what they deserved. He would give them grace and love and forgiveness and acceptance. And so the walk this son is taking is he practices what he'll say when he finally sees his father. It's not a walk of shame, but rather it's a walk of redemption. He has come to his senses and realized where his hope lies. And as he practices this speech, I don't imagine him hanging his head in embarrassment as much as holding on to the hope of what he'll find when he gets to his father's house. See, we must reject the notion that it's shameful to admit our weaknesses and ask for help. Culture may tell us that humility is a negative thing, but Jesus said in Luke 14, 11, that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Humility is no cause for humiliation, but rather it is the first step toward redemption and reclaiming the purpose for which we were created. See, church, there is strength, not shame, in admitting that we can't do it on our own. And now we come to the moment of truth in this parable. Many of you, most of you, maybe all of you have heard this story before, maybe several times. You know how it ends. But imagine with me for a moment that you don't. That you're sitting in this audience of people, hearing it for the very first time, hanging on every word, knowing that Jesus is trying to teach you something through this story and wondering exactly what it's going to be. And really, Jesus has these two competing audiences as he's telling this story. Here he's got the Pharisees and scribes silently rooting for the father to reject the son, tell him to get out of my sight, you unclean pig. I never want to talk to you again because that's what they do. And then over here you have the notorious sinners, the lost causes who see themselves in every single aspect of the son, hoping that Jesus will utter some words that give them hope for themselves. Imagine it's like you're watching a movie and for whatever reason you identify with one of the characters and towards the end of the movie as it reaches its emotional, you know, climax, you're rooting, you're, you're so emotionally invested in this character for no reason whatsoever. Well, these guys have a reason because it's not just a, a film. This is Jesus teaching them a, a kingdom principle and they don't know yet what the words are going to be. And I imagine you could hear a pin drop as Jesus speaks the words of verse 20. He says, so he returned home to his father and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. So the tension builds and the father now knows that the son has returned. What, what will the father do? Which side of the audience will be vindicated? Find out next week on story time with Jesus. Dun, 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 dun. Jesus brings this story home with a great, with an amazing example of God's love for us by saying, filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Now, these Pharisees and scribes over here, they're filled with anger and they're disgusted. Ah, oh, man, 
What a dummy that father is. But imagine for a moment the, the goosebumps that washed over these notorious sinners as they heard Jesus say that the, that the son, that same son who really was, it was them. He was lost. He was, he was rejected. He was unclean. He was a lost cause just like they were. And in this story, the father doesn't reject him. He accepts him. He loves him. Imagine how they must have felt in that moment. Imagine how wonderful it must have been for them to understand with just a few words that Jesus confirms that everything they've ever believed or been told about themselves is wrong, that they are not alone, that they are not hopeless, that they are not a lost cause. And as powerful as this entire story is, my favorite sentence in the whole thing is in the middle of verse 20. You ever heard somebody say they had a favorite sentence in the Bible? My, the students on Wednesday nights, like every single week, I have a different favorite Bible verse that I share with them. Probably roll my eyes, their eyes at me a little bit, but this is my favorite sentence, at least in this passage. It's in the middle of verse 20, and it says this. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. I was doing research for this message this morning, and there's some Bible commentators who believe that the father saw the son coming because he just so happened to be in the right place at the right time on the right day to see the son in the distance, catch a glimpse of, oh, is that my son's head over there? But I don't really agree with that. There's another group of commentators who believe that the reason the father saw his son coming while he was still a long way off was because he'd been looking for him. And here's the thing. I don't think it's... <laughs> much of a stretch to believe that if the father was looking for him on that day, then he was looking for him on the day before that, and 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 every day since the day he left, he's been looking for his son, asking himself, is today the day my boy comes home? And what Jesus is communicating in this verse is that as unclean and notorious and hopeless as the situation may seem, that we will never, we will never truly be a lost cause. Because listen, a cause is only truly lost when there's no longer anyone willing to put in the work to look for it. And the father never stopped looking for his son. Jesus explicitly states this in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, when he says that he came to earth to seek and save those who are lost. That was his entire purpose for living, dying, and raising again, to seek and to save those who are lost. The Apostle Paul confirms it in Romans 5, 8, when he says that God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us, not after we got all our mess figured out, but while we were still sinners. It's a, if a cause is only truly lost when there's no longer anyone willing to put in the work to look for it, then no one in this room has within ourselves the capacity to ever be a lost cause because God's love is so great and his mercy so expansive that he will never stop looking for you. Not only did the father not stop looking for his son, but he ran to him. As soon as he caught a glimpse, he took off running. I need you to remember with me for just a moment, the common dress of that culture would have been an ankle-length robe. And this man, based on the context of Jesus' story, was understood to not be a young man. And in order for him to run to his son, he would have to hike that robe up above his knees 
and run down the path. It was incredibly undignified in that culture. Yet again, the Pharisees are probably over here like, oh, how could he? But the unclean, notorious sinners are like, holy smokes, this guy loves his son. And he ran to his son. He was so excited he didn't care what anybody else think. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son. He embraced him and kissed him. He didn't scold his son or lecture him or say, how could you? He loved him unconditionally and uncontrollably. He was so overcome with excitement and joy that his son had finally come home. In the midst of all this excitement, his son begins to deliver the speech he'd been so diligently practicing. Verse 21, his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to his servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now is found. So the party began. Even as this son, in his truly repentant and remorseful state, he's trying to come clean. He's trying to ask the father for forgiveness. The father interrupts him and says, dude, let's have a party because my boys come home. I don't want to hear nothing about you being a servant or anything other than my son because that's who you are. That's who you've always been. And he celebrates the long-awaited return with a party. After coming to his senses... And, his, and admitting his need for help, the son has gone from rock bottom to better than ever. The father has showed him love and grace and forgiveness and acceptance and given him everything he needs to move forward. And the son barely had to ask. If you've been part of Epicenter for a while, you've heard Pastor Mark say that God will take your test and turn it into a testimony. He says also, God will take your mess and turn it into a message. And what, what both of those phrases mean is that no matter how hopeless your situation feels, no matter how messed up or difficult or how much of a lost cause it feels like you find yourself in the middle of, if you're willing to hold on, if you're willing to keep hoping, if you're willing to turn to God for strength, he will see you through. And when you make it to the other side, when you get out of that pigsty and realize that, that you are not a lost cause, then you will have a testimony. You will have a message. And so this morning, the actions of the Father, I believe we can add a third phrase. Not only will God take our test and turn it into a testimony, not only will he take our mess and turn it into a message, but he will take our pigsty and turn it into a party. Come on, y'all. And the father declares in his celebration, he declares that his son was dead, but he is alive. He was lost, but he is found. His situation was hopeless, but he has been made whole. He was at rock bottom, but he is restored. And this is the best part. He never really was the lost cause he thought himself to be because the father never once stopped looking for him. And that's where you and I come in. No matter what circumstance you may find yourself in, in this moment, no matter how difficult or hopeless your situation might feel, no matter how close to giving up 
you were when you walked in these doors this morning. We have to stop identifying ourselves as a lost cause because a cause is only truly lost when there's no longer anyone willing to put in the work to look for it. And with his death and resurrection, Jesus has already put in all the work we need to be found, to be saved, to be redeemed, and to be restored. No matter what you've done or what you're going through, your pain is not deep enough, your past is not dark enough, and your problems are not big enough that God cannot show up in your life and intervene. So while we may be here this morning and feel like we're dealing with a lost cause, that we are a lost cause, God is bigger than anything and everything that we ever have or ever will go through. His grace is all we need. His power is made perfect in our weakness. But to truly receive that grace and strength we need, we have to be willing to come to our senses. We have to let go of the prideful delusion that we can make it through life on our own. I said this a few minutes ago, but I'm going to say it again now. Whatever you're going through, whatever rock bottom looks like in your life, you do not have what it takes to make it out alone. But you were never created to make it out alone. When the son came to his senses, listen, this, when the son came to his senses, he didn't go to his employer and begin to negotiate for a higher salary. He didn't go find some herbs and spices and seasoning and try to make those pig pods a little more appetizing, figuring oh, I can stick it out a few more weeks in this. He got up and he went home to his father, the place where he knew he would find his greatest hope. So this morning, I challenge you to come to your senses. Let go of your pride and your delusions. Remember where your hope lies and come back home. You can practice a speech if you want to, but I'm pretty sure that while you're still a long way off, God will see you and he'll start running to you. And he'll, he will throw his arms around you with all the love and grace and acceptance that you could ever need. He'll turn your pigsty into a party because what was lost will be found and what was dead will be brought back to life. Where's my worship team at? All right. Well, they'll be found in just a moment, I guess. Here's the thing. You may be helpless. You may feel helpless, but you are not hopeless. You may be afraid, but you are not a failure. You may have some dirt in your life, but you will not be destroyed. You may feel lonely, but you are loved. You may feel lost, but you are not a lost cause. Because a cause is only truly lost if there's no longer anyone willing to put in the work to look for it. And God loves you so much that he has never stopped looking for you. Hoping that today will be the day you come to your senses. Come clean about your need for help and hope and come home to the Father who has never given up on you. You are not a lost cause. Stand to your feet this morning.
I want you to imagine with me for just a moment the secondary audience of this parable. You know, this parable doesn't end here. There's nine or ten more verses that are filled with lots of deep theology and meaning, and I wish we had time to explore them today, but we'll save it for another time. But this secondary audience, these unclean, notorious sinners, these lost causes... Imagine for a moment how they felt hearing this story. Hearing that while they were, while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and ran to him and loved him and accepted him and forgave him and gave him a hope and a home. You and I have heard it all countless times before, but imagine how they felt. They didn't, they'd never experienced that before. They'd never heard that there was a possibility of redemption, of restoration, of forgiveness. Now imagine or think about for a moment those of you who are here and you find yourself at rock bottom. You feel like a lost cause. There's no longer any reason for you to hope. And when you feel that way, this can all just seem like words. It can seem like stuff you've heard a bunch of times before, and yeah, I believe it, yeah, I understand it, but I don't feel it. I don't, I'm not experiencing that in my life because I'm praying and things still just aren't going the way I want them to go. See, when the son came to his senses, he didn't snap his fingers and get out the pigsty. He had to take a long journey to get back home. It's, it's a process. But for those of you who are here today and you feel like you're dealing with a lost cause, I want you to understand these are not just words. I want you to picture yourself in the audience this morning listening to Jesus say it for the first time. You have value. You have worth. You are not hopeless. You are not useless. You are not worthless. You are not a lost cause because my Father's love for you is so great. He has never stopped looking for you, waiting for you to come to your senses and come back home and allow Him to give you the strength you so desperately need to move forward from your circumstances. Let Jesus say those words to you this morning, not as though you've heard or read them a thousand times before, but as you're a member of the audience, let it wash over you the way it did them. That, hey, I don't care how many times you've read it. I don't care how many times you say you've understood it. This day, I need you to know it at the bottom of your heart, to come to your senses, to come to yourself, to let go of your delusions and understand that when I look at you, I don't see a lost cause. I don't see the dirt or the, 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 the stuff in your past. I don't see any of that. I see you for who you are, my child, and I'm asking you to come back home because I've never stopped looking for you.